Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. European policy is becoming as important to U.S. tech companies as the policy process implementation here in the United States. The European governments are taking a heavy regulatory stance to knock down what they see as problematic competitive behavior of the U.S. big tech company's success and wish to place their antitrust values through regulatory means to overhaul the actual global operations of top U.S. technology companies. Can innovation continue to thrive when regulators overhaul laws governing how companies operate under the guise of competition aimed to rein in our current markets? And how do American companies best manage the EU process that is being placed upon them? My guest today is Peter Brown. Peter is the European Parliament's Senior Advisor on Technology Policy in Washington, D.C. Peter has years of experience in the ISO standards around artificial intelligence and technology policy. He has advised Fortune 100 companies, national governments, and international organizations on technology strategy and governance around innovation and government regulatory process. Peter served as president of the Identity Ecosystem Steering Group, established under President Obama's National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, known as NSTIC, and was the president and board chair of the Global Open Standards Consortium, OASIS. Peter has done extensive work around artificial intelligence regarding ethical and governance challenges for organizations, governments, and society. Today, we will discuss the current regulatory environment for technology in Europe with an introductory explainer on how the EU process collaborates between their government bodies. Peter, welcome to the podcast. There has been a lot of action in Europe around technology regulation in the past year that I look forward to talking to you about. But first, tell us about your role here in Washington as the Senior Advisor of Technology Policy for the European Parliament's DC Liaison Office. Thank you, Shane, for the invitation. First of all, the European Parliament is the only legislature in the year that in the world that has its own external presence or diplomatic presence in third countries. Uh, we have offices in London, shortly in Jakarta, but the first one was in DC, and that was because of the importance of the transatlantic relationship and the importance of uh, establishing liaison with US Congress. So the principal role of the office is uh, liaison with Congress, but also in outreach with private sector academia, think tanks. Um, the office is a mix of staff from our own press and communication services, as well as specialists from the various policy services in the parliament, uh, staff on detail. My own post is actually, it's the first time that someone's been nominated to explicitly cover um, technology policy. Broadly, other colleagues will lead on specific dossiers because they're following particular parliamentary committees or whatever. But my, my brief is more to give some horizontal overview and understand how the various aspects of technology policy sort of link together and provide um, specialist input to the to, to the various teams. I know I've worked with other people in, you know, your office previously, Andre Glorioso was one of my favorites early on. But, uh, you know, we think we probably had more entertaining value than sometimes we learned things that we had all the time. So we, I really appreciate that they send you over here. I don't, is going to Jakarta, is that like a bonus after you put up with us, your Americans or... Well, one of my, the, the former head of office in Washington is waiting to go to Jakarta. Um, his, his mission is, it's been delayed a couple of years, partly because of COVID and various other diplomatic issues. But yeah, he's due to start there. The, the Jakarta office is due to open in September, I think, this year. Sounds exciting. 
So another fundamental building block in this discussion before we get to the recently passed legislation, could you help, especially me, since this is explained to Shane, uh, give us an overview of how the EU lawmaking and regulatory process around big tech, antitrust, and privacy is working? So much is being written about with the Direct Marketing Act and the Direct Service Act, or sorry, Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act right now. So as you just mentioned, you spend a lot of time working with Congress. If you can help us with the similarities and the dissimilarities on what the relationships between the European Parliament, the Commission... Mm. Are, that would be a huge get for me. <laughs> I understand it. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that listeners need to sort of get their heads around, which which we have to remind people, is that the European Union as such is only 30 years old in terms of its current legislative and legal basis. Um, even the you know, predecessors of the European communities go back to the 1950s. And the current set of legislative powers are only 15 years old since the Lisbon Treaty was signed. So we're still the sort of new kid on the block in terms of how things uh, operate. The issues for, and this is sort of general across all types of um, legislation, is the, the, the big differences, I think, with the US is that what we do at the European Union level can only be done if it's covered in the treaty, that there's an explicit uh, provision in the uh, European Union treaties, what we call the legal basis, to act. There has to be an examination of so-called subsidiarity and proportionality. Is it better to do something at the European level than at a national level? Thirdly, it's only the European Commission that can initiate legislation. The European Parliament doesn't have a right of initiative, and neither do the member states, except in some, some limited uh, cases. And most legislation requires agreement between the Parliament and the member states. Um, and at the end of the day, legislation that's approved at the European level is, tends to be transposed into national law and implemented and enforced in national law. The, the role of the European Commission is often very, a sort of a secondary role in terms of enforcement or cracking the whip sometimes with member states. Obviously, the cornerstone of a lot of the European Union's work is the so-called four freedoms of movement, the freedom of movement of people, capital, goods and services, and the creation or the completion of the so-called internal market which is, explains why a lot of the laws and regulations are couched often in terms of completion of the internal market and not to specific market verticals or market sectors. And I think that's important to understand because if you look at legislation that we've uh, that currently um, considered or recently considered in the whole sector, cybersecurity, the legal basis was completion of the internal market because the European Union doesn't have it a competence for cybersecurity. It's a member state competence primarily. The cybersecurity competence center that was established at the European level was uh, done under legal basis of um, industrial competitiveness and cooperation on R&D. GDPR, as you know, is one of the few where there was a specific legal basis on protection of personal data and therefore was able to be uh, adopted on that basis. But again, it used the article, article 114 of the treaties on the completion of the internal market, as does the AI Act, and as does the, the, the two we're looking at, um, Digital Services Act and Digital Market Act. They're not talking about the particular sectors as technology sectors. They're looking at it as their role as major economic actors within the European internal market. And I think the in terms of major differences, I mean, with Congress, in summary, you know, legislation is only possible if it's covered by the treaties, it's proposed by the Commission. The similarities, I think, are this balance or trying to find the balance of competing interests between the executive in the US, you know, the executive, the Senate and the House, 
And in the European level, the executive is the European Commission largely. You've got the member states of the European Parliament. And I think the other similarity is judicial oversight, you know, ultimately with the Supreme Court in the US and with the Court of Justice in the European Union. So there are significant differences, but I think, you know, we're still you know, we're still the two largest rule of law legislators on the planet in terms of, if you're looking in terms of economic and, and uh, political impact. And I think those commonalities are actually more important than the, the differences that we do see sometimes in terms of the substance. Uh, following the GDPR was uh, interesting because the idea of having a, the implementation going back to national law, for, you know, as we're trying to figure out how to do a federal law here. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting to watch how things go there. And and you think that the process is further along because the big decision has been made, but now there's kind of a mother may I process as I think about it. You know, it's like you going, okay, I've got an issue. Where do I go? And there's sort of an appeal process to, you know, if enough of them decide something is a problem, maybe Brussels steps in is the way I've kind of seen it as we were watching schools mm. around. I spent a lot of time in the ICANN who was in, you know, areas so which a lot of talk about that. So this, I, the trilogue that just happened. Yeah. For those of us that are like real government geeks, this is fun stuff. So what, who gets to play in the trilogue? Like, you know, is it a big deal? Do you pick team colors? I mean, how does um, it, it So, I mean, there have been whole books written about this. So I'm probably not going to do, <laughs> not going to do it justice in a couple of minutes. But broadly, you've got a, a sort of multi opportunities for legislation to be dealt with at multiple readings. And again, so again, there's some similarities both with uh, national uh, legislative procedures in, in Europe as well as in the US. So starts off, as I say, commission announces a legislative procedure. We have the big advantage, I think, over the Congress in that sense, not just because the commission is proposing it, but commission, uh, as a result of cooperation over many years, issues a annual legislative program. So we can actually think about what's coming up and within the parliament which we think of congress being complex with the majority and a minority we deal with seven major political groups across 27 countries working in 23 languages and so for any piece of legislation it's not a question of saying you know the majority says this and the minority wants that it's trying to find a balance between all these different political groups and sort of sharing the cake out fairly amongst those that are willing to cooperate so the commission proposal arrives on the table in the parliament. We have a first reading. That means parliament looks at it, looks at the legal basis, decides which parliamentary committee is going to lead on the piece of legislation. It may sometimes be a couple of committees that are involved. And each committee nominates what we call a rapporteur, which is the sort of not really a sponsor in the, in the Congress sense, but is the lead legislator for the parliament, whose job it is to pilot it through the whole internal process until the whole house, the plenary, um, gets to vote on that first reading. Now, alongside that, the council representing the member states has its deliberations, somewhat more secretive than the parliament, which has been one of our bones of contention. It'll sometimes issue what's called a general approach, which is a informal document saying, here are our main concerns and main lines of difference with the commission and things you may want to watch out for while you're uh, considering it in the parliament. But basically, formally, the parliament comes up with a first reading, which will consist of the commission proposal plus its own amendments. And what happens with the trialogue, which can be initiated anywhere through the whole process, is a it's basically informal but politically charged meetings between representatives of the council, the commission, 
where the commission's playing a little bit the referee, although it has a vested interest in its own initial proposal, and the parliament together trying to come to some sort of political agreement. And I mean, um, DMA is an uh, example there where parliament had approved its position at first reading with a whole series of amendments. Council had some differences of opinion on some of those issues. But because of the trialogue, they were able to come to this political conclusion last month and say, we actually have a deal. We now just have to go back to our respective institutions and sell that and get that formalized through the process. So if at a first reading, council agrees with parliament, end of process, the, the legislation gets adopted. If commission doesn't like what parliament's proposing in the first reading, it goes to a second reading, which then parliament can either approve, in which case, if it approves commission's uh, the, the council's amendment gets adopted. If Parliament amends it, then it goes back again to the council for a second reading. And if then the council still doesn't agree, it goes to what's called a conciliation procedure. At any stage, first reading, second reading, conciliation procedure, there is no agreement or there's complete rejection of the other person's, of the other body's position. The whole thing ends. So it's a bit of a nuclear option, which everyone knows is there. What we've seen, I think, in the last decade is an increased maturity in sort of, okay, there's some grandstanding, there's always political grandstanding, that's the nature of politics, but an increased maturity in recognizing the stakes are high and that getting agreement at a first reading and using the opportunity of this informal trialogue actually helps everybody rather than just stringing things out for, for many years. GDPR was an example. I mean, the whole process started what, in, in 2011, adopted finally in 2016, crossed two parliament legislatures, tired everybody out, and everyone said, oh my goodness, you know, what a incredibly complex process to get to something which we think is important, but ultimately was still still had, you know, gaps and uh, problems in implementation. And if this trilogue process had been more used earlier on and been available earlier on, maybe GDPR would have looked to you know different and uh, more effective beast. That's me. That's me projecting a little bit about what I'd like to see from digital tech policy. But again, to the point that the EU is still a relatively young legislature um, globally, I think it's done pretty well in the way that it's adapted to these new legislative roles and uh, understood the. That the stakes are high and hence recognize things like the trial are, are a better way to get to good legislation than just sort of banging the drum and, and you know grandstanding on points where you're actually never going to get any agreement. That's helpful because I was equating it in my head to our process where you go to a conference committee, which we haven't done in quite some time either. It used to be more common back, you know, back in the day, but now the idea Yeah, I think it's can be America competes, I think is the first one for a long time, isn't it? Yeah. The uh but yeah, the, the the conference committee process, I think, is probably similar to our conciliation process, where you have a formal delegation from the parliament, delegation from the council, chaired by the commission, and they try and you say, okay, guys and gals, let's try and work this out. There is that attempt to try and get things agreed, get a political agreement earlier in the stage. So, you know, we don't wear everybody down. But now in my head, now that you said that you can call out trilogue at any point or suggest it, I'm thinking it's sort of like in the Pirates of the Caribbean where she goes, Pale. <laughs> like somebody goes trilogue and a bunch of things like go off and happen. That would be kind of fun if government was just that entertaining. So because we have the Digital Markets Act, 
before us right now. And so they've gone through this trilogue process. What What is the phase now for implementation? As a result of the agreement, and council is very clear saying it would be it would take back in the coming days the the substance of the agreement back to a full meeting of not a full meeting of the council. It's a meeting of what's called co-repair, the committee of permanent representatives, which is basically the the proxies of the member state ministers uh, in the form of their ambassadorial and diplomatic representations in Brussels, representing their member states. And given that there is this sort of informal agreement within the trialogue, that co-repair body is going to, they're not going to overrule their political masters, they will um, approve that. I I don't have in front of me, uh, and I couldn't couldn't find for this call the the deadlines or the dates from the parliament's point of view. But uh, as far as I understand it, it's, again, it's it's a matter of weeks before there is final agreement on that. And once the once it is approved by and it's Parliament that puts the the, the, the sort of ink on the ink on the signature page of the of the regulation, then it is subject to a six month period before implementation. So you know we we're we're looking still at uh, 2022 for that to be uh, come into come into effect. Uh, you'll be you'll be back on the show called <laughs> and we'll then just call it <laughs> next and you're gonna do thank you for all that explanation that was really helpful because I, I this the digital markets act in the fact that it is pacing the same time as the competition legislation in both the house and the senate is interesting for those of us following all that because we don't normally get to watch this on on many shores happening all at the same time so it'll be good support for quite some time so let's get oh, absolutely to yeah yeah well i mean so let's just hope that it ends well and not in tears so the original reason why I asked you to be on the show is I saw you on a panel at the Consumer Electronics Show in January talking about artificial intelligence. And I loved because just kind of the point of like just how you manage through all these different governments. You were talking about just language and the use of how people explain artificial intelligence. And I think it was mm. versus, I'd be making up the second part, but they just were looking at the, their descriptive of the idea of an autonomous vehicle. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was one of the examples. Yeah, you know, in a very different fashion that it it would very much change the discussion depending on which definition you were using around that. And I think we're not doing that so much at a little bit at the legislative level here, but, you know, more at the, you know, the area that you've spent quite a bit of time in the whole standards and ISO process of, you know, how we define things, I think, is very important at this stage in artificial intelligence and where it moves forward. And there's, I think we use it as humans all the time. We don't necessarily notice it. And I wish that they hadn't called it artificial intelligence, because I think it freaks people out at a level that if we put another moniker on it, we'd be in a different place. So can you give that example again? I just thought it was an excellent one. Yeah. So, I mean, the example I think we talked about was was, was on the, the question of autonomous. What, what do we mean by autonomous when it comes to autonomous vehicles or autonomous decision-making within the context of artificial intelligence? And the example I gave was that if you talk to a regulator in Germany, for example, in the Department of Transport in Germany, about what are the prospects for autonomous vehicles on German roads? The answer would be a categorical never, because the way they define autonomous vehicle in Germany, at least in, in this current discussion, is, well, for us, autonomous means free of any human intervention, oversight, or involvement in any way whatsoever. That's what autonomous means. And we will never let a device, a machine on a road that's designed to be 
uh, used by humans steering, you know, one-ton slabs of metal and uh, machinery to devices which have absolutely no um, human oversight or involvement in any stage. And then you go to the US, and I think this was the, the example I gave where we talk about, you know, I think the example is with DOD, autonomous weapons systems, their definition or use of the word there is, well, no, when we say autonomous, we clearly mean that at a certain point, automated systems take over from humans, but the way that the system is deployed is still with human oversight and human control up to a certain point. So therefore, their use of the word autonomous is probably a sort of a weaker use of the word, but actually more practical in terms of understanding that the whole idea around autonomy and automated is something where there's that there's that very important interplay between human humans, so-called in the loop, on the loop, human oversight, highly automated processes where the humans are not involved. A car on the road in Germany will probably as, as, as likely as not, have an automated braking system, like any car anywhere else in the world. Now, is that autonomous? Well, to an extent, yes, because you put your foot on the brake, but there's a whole bunch of processes, intelligent, so-called intelligent systems, kicking in to determine the most effective way of bringing that vehicle to a stop without it skidding, sliding, and losing complete control. So there's a, there's a high degree of autonomy in a part of the system, even if the driver is left as overall responsible and in control of the vehicle, if that makes sense. So this whole issue about autonomy versus automated is something which I think requires more attention, particularly in the in the field of artificial intelligence. And one thing I'm pleased to see is that in the discussions between the US and the EU in the in the Trade and Technology Council, the work of which has been underway since the um, since this time last year, is that in one of the working groups there, they are very concerned to see that there is common terminology used throughout the work in the US and in the EU on issues around artificial intelligence, because it's the only way you can be able to cooperate in, in actually developing products and markets for, for goods in those, in those sort of areas. So that issue of terminology is, is quite critical. And getting it straightened out early on, definitely. We'll see yeah. a heartache later in the process. So, so how is the standards process going for AI? How do you, you've been engaged in this for a long time? Are we making progress? Um, people happy? Yes, I think. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I'd say um, with regard to standards generally. One is, um, I mean, the, the field that I'm mainly involved in is, is obviously is technology standards, and that's managed at the Europe at the at the international level in this joint technical committee uh, between ISO and IEC, uh, which covers all um, uh, tech standards. What I've what I found fascinating in the last 25 years in that work is, although its focus is technology, it's actually the non-tech issues within those technology standards, which are often the most problematic and the ones which, uh, which require the most attention. You know, getting standards on agreement on, you know, the bit rate for processing video or an MPEG or a JPEG file or whatever, those are pretty scientific and very objective. You know, when you're talking about oversight, governance, risk assessment, liability, conformance, conformity assessment, all of these words, they mean things in a formal standards uh, setting. 
but actually defining them can often be um, very, very difficult. And I think the my, my biggest observation, I think, in the standards work is that, particularly in the AI work, we struck lucky, I think, for once at a global level. Often the standards work lags somewhat behind innovation. But I think this was such a critical area of technology and interest that I think for uh, for once the standards uh, community said we actually have to get in right at the beginning and we have to uh, tackle these issues about core terminology and concepts, uh, which is one of the first standards that's been looked at by the committee that's dealing with um, the AI standards globally and the issues around what we call the governance implications on the use of AI, which is the standard I was edited for and has just been published this month. So looking at some of those high-level issues about what do we mean by AI, even, uh, and there was even a, you know, a nearly a year-long discussion about can we have a formal definition for artificial intelligence in the committee covering artificial intelligence? And the conclusion was no, because the w- all of the work looking at concepts and terminology of AI itself feeds into what AI is about. And to try to define AI in a sort of single sentence, which is how most definitions are done within formal standards, was probably going to be more problematic than helpful because by being so reductionist, you're actually going to lose a lot of, um, a lot of support and a lot of uh, people to the complexities that AI involves, throws up. I think two other small issues, well, not small issues, but two other issues which I think are important, uh, I think extremely important in many ways. One is where standardization takes place. I mean, I've been involved, as I say, for 25 years or so with um, standards at a global level. Before that, also at a um, regional level, European um, standards work. And this whole issue about whether standards are developed globally, at a regional level, at a national level, I think is important as well. And you have to understand standards development as as sort of almost a marketplace in its own right. There are competing standards. They're voluntary. They're not regulations. They're not things which you have to follow. But if you choose to follow them, you're expected to follow them as as designed and as as on the packet. But there is an interplay, which, again, this Trade and Technology uh, Council is, is looking at a little bit between standards developed in the US and for the US market, standards developed in Europe for the European market, versus standards developed globally and the elephant in the room, you know, the growth of China in the stand, in global standardization work. And I think one concern that's raised, which I think is legitimate, is if the EU or any other region insists about the importance of standards at that level, you're basically giving a free pass to countries like China to do the same. And therefore, the there's a sense of strengthening and reinforcing the importance of global standards where there is a fair competition of ideas and fair and transparent process and consensus driven where all actors can be involved in developing those standards and that they can have value across across the globe and that regional standards really ought to be reserved for issues which are only affecting that particular region or a particular country. Every time I have to go bring a different electrical outlet item, I think of that. <laughs> so we've progressed so far in certain ways, and there's other things that the decision was made a long time ago, and I will be bringing a converter with me. But I do really take to heart your idea. I'm a huge believer that you shouldn't legislate technology, you should legislate outcomes. 
because I tech is to allow the innovation to move forward. If you get too prescriptive in the the guidance, you lock things in. And I am concerned about what I am reading both here in the United States with the Klobuchar bill and with the Digital Markets Act. The idea of the operability challenge is I'm calling it a challenge because I, I, you know, I like things that work and connect together. I don't try to fight the system. Every once in a while, I've done that with my Wi-Fi, and I'm like, oh, just go back to what's you know easy rather than you know reading too much, too many Wired magazine articles and thinking I can outsmart the system. But the idea of the interoperability is, you know, we don't like friction. We're really used to a seamless process right now, and uh, the idea that you should allow anything on any device, I think, is challenging. Especially, I have. Personally, I have very strong cybersecurity and safety concerns because I, I I'm an Apple user. I call that people all the time. I I love that they curate things on on my behalf. And I was reading an article that somebody sent me earlier about after actually after GDPR was uh, put into the process, how many apps fell off of the it was the Android store, and it made me wonder how many of them were just really conduits for data, um, you know, grabbing data. And not actually what the app you know claimed to do. So it, it was just an interesting thing of that that was not what the GDPR was intended for, but it was an after effect of what happened. And I think we're going to see things with this interoperability that may challenge some of the engineering process that I wish would come before the regulation, because I think that that's you know having an agreed upon outcome is is really vital to this. So do you think I'm off base, or do you think there's something to that? I don't think you're off base, and I think the you know the, the the example of Apple is is an interesting one. I mean, the you know I don't need to you know speak to their talking points; they do that far more eloquently on their own. But the the point of saying yes, we have a walled garden for our system, and that is because and you're paying a premium for Apple products. I'm sure the the, the physical the cost of physically putting an, an Apple iPhone together is is a fraction of the total cost that you're paying as a consumer because you're not paying for the device you're paying for the ecosystem and for that at least that the brand is selling itself as a trusted walled garden and ecosystem where we put the threshold of personal security of safety of uh, your personal data as a, as a premium that is their sort of that is their differentiator in the market and you know to be be fair to Google and to the Android platform equally, they'll say we're for an open, even to the extent of open source software uh, market where it's a free for all and people can do what they want. We're not going to prescribe to anybody, you you know, caveat emptor, you know, let the buyer beware. We we don't make any guarantees about what it is, but we're going to be putting stuff to market which is accessible, affordable, easy to use, and where there's you know a- anybody can uh, can can get to that. And I think. The point is, if you if you believe in a capitalist economy, you have to accept that both are equally legitimate, and they have they are key, there are key differentiators in in both models, and there may be other types of model. So I think you're right in terms of the issue about being, you know, that the risk of being prescriptive in how you go about doing something, rather than saying this is the outcome that we we aim to look for, I think is absolutely our message. I would like to think that in the DMA, uh, I mean, yes, there's been a lot of lot of noise, a lot of grandstanding, a lot of discussion about the uh, about the the draft legislation, not least in the European Parliament. But one thing that it is attempting to address as an objective is perceived market failures and over competition and innovation. 
that there that and you know maybe this is a you know a typical sort of European Union uh, approach for these sort of issues of saying we worry that things are unfair and therefore we're going to legislate to try and make them less unfair and that this whole gatekeeper concept of uh, DNA is intended to deal with unfair conduct not so basically the argument is if your gatekeeper has that's playing according to the rules you've actually got nothing to worry about um, the, the rules you might not necessarily agree with but we're trying to do this because these are the things that we think are important you know for market coherence or legal certainty or, or other issues so i think the sort of putting that sort of positive spin on the DNA is that it is attempting to address potential for unfair conduct by, you know, dominant market players. But I think equally, and I think uh, Andres Schwab, the, the, the lead legislator from our side, I mean, he was in Washington, I think, in mid-December. Following that, he, you know, he's made, he's, he's spoken a number of events where he sort of said, you know, I, I, I know I was in the hot seat with a lot of uh, a lot of people in the U.S. government and in uh, and on the Hill, but actually talking to people face to face and and listening to their concerns and understanding where they were coming from was actually very very uh, very very positive. So um, you know, back to your Pirates of the Caribbean uh, example, you know, Parlay, you know, Parlement, Parliament. That's where the word comes from. It's about it's about literally being a talk shop. And I think the the agreement they've come to. Um, I mean, I still wait to see the the, the details. I think is a is a reasonable first step, and I think the final element, which is very much a, a sort of a European view on this, and I know it doesn't go down so well in the US, which is this idea that somehow regulation impedes innovation. I'm actually a strong believer that regulation encourages innovation. You know, um, necessity is the mother of invention, as we say. I've said to folk in Silicon Valley to um, investors and whatever, when are you going to come up with a model for technology products and services which don't rely on harvesting personal data and advertising? If you're so innovative, surely you can come up with a new model for new products which don't rely on those two things, which are pretty much saturated and bordering on the invasive when you know the, the sort of data that you need to collect on people becomes so detailed that people do start becoming uncomfortable so that idea that somehow innovation is a is in opposition to regulation i'm happy to go a few rounds and a few drinks with people on on that subject but i i think it's i think it's fair to say that it's not a simple opposition of of, of approaches where the balance lies, okay, that's up for debate. I accept that. But um, I think the European approach has tended to be worry about outcomes first without necessarily looking at what's possible or what's where innovation lies. The stereotype of the American side is, you know, innovate first, get stuff out to market, and then worry later about what the consequences are. And I think the, you know, the the fair Average citizen would probably say, you know, the, the the reality is a balance between those two. Well, I think that's a lovely place to start. But I'm going to say you're going to be a regular guest. We're going to have much more to talk about. And I, I I'd do love to. Yeah, there's so many things to cover on this particular one. But there is just so much in that area. And a good shout out to the Web three people who are trying to, you know, put innovation more forward and get past uh, Web two that we're in right now. So. It was lovely to have you on. Is there any last thoughts for what we should be watching for the summer? 
there's two things. Obviously, this this issue with the Trade and Technology Council, I think it's going to be big. Uh, the meeting in Paris, uh, you know, in 10 days' time, uh, probably the time this broadcast goes out. Um, the European Parliament and the Congress are both expressing interest to have some parliamentary and legislative oversight of that executive uh, cooperation between the EU and the US government. And I think that issue, I think, is going to be something which will grow over the next year. To my own work, um, it, I, I want to stay in this field. You know, being posted as a diplomat in Washington isn't forever, but this is clearly a field that I'm remain interested in. And you can follow me at Pensive Peter. That's on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter. Mainly LinkedIn is my sort of platform for getting new ideas out. And I'm going to be writing two series of posts in the in the in the coming months. One on the whole series of issues around AI, and the second one around what's different between digital and analog in our world, and what are the advantages of both in terms of uh, future of society. Fantastic. We will be on the lookout for those. Well, Peter, thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.